let's set the Wayback Machine for the year 66 A.D. And the time is Israel. It's Jerusalem. It's a very pivotal point. It's right before a prediction that Jesus made is about to take place. The prediction, of course, is that the enemies of Jerusalem will surround it and will destroy it. Jesus predicted that. In 66 A.D., the Jewish revolt began against Rome. The tension they had felt for so many years reached its high point. They thought, enough is enough, and a group of zealots got together to overthrow Rome very unsuccessfully. The 10th legion of the Roman army under Titus came from Rome to Jerusalem and surrounded the city. And in 70 AD, the city fell. The city fell, the temple was burned, uh, many of the Jews who lived in the city we, were deported out of town, and there were so many of them who became slaves that it was said there were too many Jewish slaves to sell even in Cairo. So they were giving them away, the Jews who had been taken captive from 70 A.D. There were people who escaped, and those that managed to escape went to a place out in the middle of nowhere called Masada. Have you ever seen the reenactment, the movie Masada? Any of you here? It's an excellent film. It's a very moving story, and it's a true story. 967 Jewish zealots climbed up to this fortress of Masada down by the Dead Sea and waited it out. It was a fortress that Herod the Great had built for himself. He built many. They were hiding out there, and General Silva another general from Rome, took the 10th legion that was stationed at Jerusalem and moved them down to Masada to overthrow this revolt. There's 967 Jewish zealots, men, women, and children, living on top of the fortress of Masada. Now, they could stay there for a long time because Herod the Great had built storage rooms where food was kept so that nobody could starve them out. And there in the middle of the desert, where they have less than a half an inch of rainfall per year, they had enough water, more than they knew what to do with, because of the huge cisterns that collected water upon that place. Well, there they were, and the Romans camped around them. About 1,000 to 1,500 soldiers surrounded them and built eight stone camps, that is, walls around their encampments, and a perimeter wall just to wait it out and to starve them to death. Eventually... The Romans succeeded in using slave labor, the brethren, the Jewish brethren that they had captured in Jerusalem, and made them build this huge ramp up to Masada on the western side so that they could move their huge battering rams, huge pieces of machinery uh, with wood and stone that would break down walls of a city. Well, they finally succeeded in breaching the walls penetrating those 18-foot-high walls on top of Masada. The zealots knew that the next day the Romans would be there, they would be captured. The leader, Eleazar ben Yair, got all of the men together and said, look what happened to Jerusalem just a few years back. The city was destroyed. You see the women and the children and the men down below. They're the slaves of the Romans. The Romans have raped their wives, have enslaved their children have killed many of the men. That will happen to us. I say we take a different way out. The night before, 
a fatal mass suicide. He read this oration as recorded by Flavius Josephus in his book. This is what he said. My loyal followers, long ago we resolved to serve neither the Romans nor anyone else but God only, who alone is the true and righteous Lord of men. Now the time has come that bids us prove our determination by our deeds. At such a time, we must not disgrace ourselves. Hitherto, we have never submitted to slavery, even when it brought no danger with it. We must not choose slavery now, and with it penalties that will mean the end of everything, if we fall alive into the hands of the Romans. For we were the first of all to revolt, and shall be the last to break the struggle. And I think it is God who has given us this privilege that we can die nobly and as free men. Unlike others who were unexpectedly defeated, in our case it is evident that daybreak will end our resistance, but we are free to choose an honorable death with our loved ones. This our enemies cannot prevent, however earnestly they may pray to take us alive, nor can we defeat them in battle. Let our wives die unabused, our children without knowledge of slavery. After that, let us do each other an ungrudging kindness, preserving our freedom as glorious winding sheet. But first, let our possessions and the whole fortress go up in flames. It will be a bitter blow to the Romans, that I know, to find our persons beyond their reach and nothing left for them to loot. One thing only let us spare, our store of food, it will bear witness that when we are dead, that we, uh, when we are dead to the fact that we perished, not through want, but because we are resolved at the beginning to choose death rather than slavery. If only we had all died before seeing the sacred city utterly destroyed by enemy hands, the holy sanctuary so impiously uprooted. But since an honorable ambition deluded us into thinking that perhaps we should succeed in avenging her of her enemies, now all hopes has fled, all hope has fled, abandoning us to our fate. Let us at once choose death with honor and do the kindest thing that we can for ourselves, our wives, our children, while it is possible to show ourselves any kindness. After all, we were born to die. We and those we brought into the world, this even the luckiest man must face. But outrage, slavery, and the sight of our wives led away to shame with our children. These are not evils to which man is subject by laws of nature. Men undergo them through their own cowardice if they have a chance to forestall them by death and will not take it. We are very proud of our courage, so we... Revolted against Rome, now in the final stages they have offered to spare our lives, and we have turned the offer down. Is anyone here too blind to see how furious they will be if they take us alive? Pity the young whose bodies are strong enough to survive prolonged torture. Pity the not-so-young whose old frames would break under such ill-usage. A man will see his wife violently carried off. He will hear the voice of his child crying, Daddy, when his own hands are fettered. Come, while our hands are free and can hold a sword. Let them do a noble service 
Let us die unenslaved by our enemies and leave this world as free men in company with our wives and children. He gave that oration to them in a synagogue that they reconstructed on top of Masada. And then the instruction was that each family member, each head of the family, would kill his children and his wife. And then the men together would take their own lives. And finally, they chose Lot, who would be the last person to take the lives of his other friends, his compadres, and then take his own life. And so when the Romans came the next day, they found over 900, almost a 1,000 people who had taken their own lives, rather than die as slaves. Now, what you may not know with the story of Masada is that it is almost reenacted every time an officer in the Israeli army takes an oath. There is a huge candlelight or torchlight ceremony atop Masada. As the officers take the oath with a Bible in one hand and a gun in the other, and they swear allegiance to their country, and they say, Masada will never fall again. Relating back to that old story, they are saying, we realize we are surrounded by enemies, and we realize that the world makes policies, and here we are in our land, and we want to defend it as anyone would in their own land. But we will never let this happen again. And this Masada complex is the idea that they will not let themselves be pushed into a corner when it comes to the issue of whose land it is. Now that is the big controversy right now in the land of Israel. As you know, we mentioned last time, Israel became a nation in 1948, a modern nation, after 2,000 years of dispersion. And then in 1967, after the Six-Day War, much of Jerusalem was taken back by the Jews. It became under their control once again. It hadn't been under their control since the Romans had taken it many years before Jesus came on the scene. If you were to talk to the average Jewish man or woman in Israel and ask them about their country and their Messiah, you would have differing opinions. People call it the Holy Land, and yet when they get over there, they're surprised to see how much secularism is in the land. They're not all religious people. There are a few Many of them see the nation of Israel being its own Messiah and take Isaiah 53 with the suffering servant as meaning the suffering nation of Israel who's been persecuted through the years. They say, we're that suffering servant. Others on the religious side say, no, we wait our Messiah, but our Messiah will not be the Son of God who takes away sin. Our Messiah will be a conquering Messiah who will overthrow the oppression of the enemies that are around us. Someone who will fight for our cause. And so they wait for the Messiah. No group of people has been so blessed and so blinded from a historical perspective as the nation of Israel. Yet, it is impossible to read Israeli history, Jewish history, and not believe in miracles. For someone to study Jewish history and say, I don't believe in miracles, that person is not a realist. What other nation, after being in a foreign land 400 years, after two total destructions, two dispersions, 2,000 years of being displaced, came back to their own land speaking the native tongue without assimilating into the nations around it? 
Jerusalem has seen 36 wars. Jerusalem has been reduced to ashes 17 times and has risen out of the ashes 18. And she stands there today. Now, how did it all start? It began with one man by the name of Abram, who was not Jewish. He was not Israeli. He lived over in Iraq. And God spoke to him. He said, get out of your country. Leave your father's house, and I'm going to give you a land. Go to the land that I show you. That was the deal. God didn't tell him where. God just says, go. You will get plans on the way. So he left the protection of a walled city in Ur of the Chaldees, and he became the first camper in the Old Testament. He took up tents, and he and his family went out as God led them through the land and to the land of Israel. He stayed there for a while, and God promised him the land. And what I'm going to do tonight is share several scriptures with you. Basically, all I'm going to do is share a few scriptures and show a few slides. Because we're going to talk about an issue that is very, very temperamental. And that is, whose right is the land of Israel? Palestine. That piece of real estate that is so hotly contested. Who owns it? Who has the right to occupy it? And I want to say that I want to remove myself from opinions and simply read to you tonight what the Bible says about some of these issues. You know, there's a lot of talk about human rights these days. That's the big issue. It's been the big issue since the 60s in this country. Human rights, individual rights, national rights, uh, cultural rights. And everybody's fighting each other over their rights. And as soon as somebody says, it's my right to have this or to do that, somebody will say, well, you by exercising your rights have now stepped on my rights. And what right do you have to exercise your rights over my rights? And I'm going to sue you for it. I guess the real question in there is, who has the right in the first place to say, who has the right to anything? Where is the authority basis? Where do you start when you talk about rights? Who is the one that gives anybody the power or the authority to have any kind of rights at all? Now, we're going to apply that to the land of Israel. Because you've got lots of people saying, we've been, we were here before you guys were here. Yeah, well, you go back and we were there before you were there. You kicked us out, but you can take it way, way back. So who's in charge of that land? Well, I've had you turn to Leviticus 25. And I want to give you eight facts tonight. You don't have to turn to all these scriptures because I'll move probably pretty fast. But fact number one, it's God's land. Okay, let's just get that straight. It doesn't belong to anybody but God. It's his real estate. Leviticus 25, verse 23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So you've got groups saying, it's my land. No, it's my land. God's saying, hey, over here. It's my land. I hold the title deed, and I can do anything I want with it. And the land shall not be sold permanently. By the way, if you were to go to Israel today and try to buy land, you couldn't. You can lease it for 99 years, but you can't buy it. Fact number two, it was given to Abraham and his descendants. He left Ur of the Chaldees. God said, get up and go to a land that I'll show you. In Genesis 12, verse 7, 
Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Abram, I've got a land for you and your descendants. Fact number three, this gift was an unconditional covenant from God. That's an underscored point. It was an unconditional covenant from God. It was not dependent upon them. It was dependent upon God. In Genesis 17, verses 6 through 8, God said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations. Notice, for an everlasting covenant. How long is that? Everlasting is longer than two, three years or 4,000 years. Everlasting means forever. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, some people will say, well, no, that's not true, even though God said it. Well, God, no, that's not true. They'll say, it is a conditional covenant, and Israel occupying their land was predicated upon their obedience to God and their faithfulness to obey God's commands. I have one word for that. That is not. It's just not so. Let me read out of Psalm 89, verses 30 through 37. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquities with stripes. This is Psalm 89, beginning in verse 30. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Now, it's true. God did promise He would judge His people. If they sinned, if they turned to idolatry, He even said, I will kick you out of the land. We'll get to that in a minute. But He said, I'll still bring you back. I'll punish you for a while. But their disobedience did not mean they were completely kicked out of the land forever. Fact number four, the land was not only given to the descendants of Abraham... Because Abraham has a lot of descendants. They're all over the world. But it was specific, right? It was to the descendants of Abraham and the descendants of Isaac. Not Ishmael, Isaac. Now, as I say this, I want to quickly say, I love the descendants of Ishmael, the Arab nations. I have so many friends in the Middle East, in Lebanon, in Israel, in Iraq that I met whom I love as brothers in Christ. And God promised to bless Ishmael and make him a great nation and that many nations would come from him. And God did that. But the specific covenant of the land of Israel that God promised to Abraham was not through Ishmael, but was through Isaac. Now, Abraham had how many sons? No, he didn't have one son. How many did he have? 
He had eight. He had Ishmael first. He had Isaac miraculously through Sarah, his wife. But then he had another wife called Keturah who bore him six sons. But the firstborn son through Hagar was Ishmael. Being the firstborn, Ishmael would have the right of the land. But a twist happened, as you remember. Um, Abraham was old when God promised him that he would have a son. And he waited a few years and he said, look, this is, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm in my 90s. Sarah, you're not getting any younger. And I'm not getting any younger. Probably what God meant, rather than that you would have a kid, is that your handmaiden, Hagar, would have a kid. So that's what we'll do. And that, that was at the prompting of his wife, Sarah. She told him to do it. He did it. And when God came again and said, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah, Abraham suggested that God not do that. In fact, here's the conversation, Genesis 17, 8. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Lord, use him. He's already born. It would be a lot easier. He's already here. Then God said, No. You get that? Oh, that Ishmael might be the one to inherit it. No, God said. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Now, God in the same chapter says, don't worry about Ishmael. A lot of nations will come from him. I'll bless him and I'll make him great. Fact number five. It came through Abraham. It came through Isaac, not Ishmael. Fact number five. The land was not given to any of the other sons of Abraham. I said that there were six. Uh, he had a son to Hagar. He had the miraculous birth uh, at the old age of he and his wife with the birth of Isaac. But then he married a woman called Keturah, which bore him six sons. And they're ancestors of many of the Arab nations today. Genesis 25, verse 5 and 6 tells us, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to a country of the east. Later on, Isaac grows up, and he can hear from God himself. And God appears to Isaac. And this is what we read in Genesis 26, verse 3 and 4. Dwell in this land, which was the land of Israel that he was in. And I will be with you and bless you, for to you and your descendants... I give all these lands. I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nation of the earth will be blessed. Fact number six, this promise was not only given to Abraham and to Isaac, but it was given to Jacob, not Esau. Remember, Isaac had a wife named Rebekah, and she had twins. And the first guy that came out was Esau, and he was hairy and red, so they called him hairy. That's what Esau means. Uh, the second born, which came out grabbing the heel of his brother, was Jacob. And the right of inheritance belonged to Esau. But what did Esau do? Despised his birthright and sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a pot of chili. Now, the Bible says a pot of stew, but I'm contemporizing it. This is in New Mexico kind of a thing. Green chili. Some kind of stew he traded it in for. 
Now listen to what Isaac says to his son Jacob. Remember the story when he's old and he can't see who his sons are? And he tells Esau, go out and cook something for me and I'll bless you. And Rebekah hears it and says, Psst, come here, Jacob. Your dad's going to bless your older brother. Go out and dress up like him and smell really ripe like he does when he comes in from hunting. And he'll smell you and think that you're him and put hairy garments all over you and fur so he thinks that you're the, you know, your older brother. So he does it. He tricks his father. Here's the blessing his father gave him. He says, And God will give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. You say, okay, wait a minute. He tricked him. It didn't count, right? You can't count that. The guy didn't know what he was doing when he blessed his son. He thought it was his older son. Well, that's not true, actually, because it was all part of the prophetic program. God said that the older will serve the younger. And it was actually predicted. In fact, when Jacob flees from his brother after tricking him, one night he has his head laying down on a rock and he sees a vision, a ladder going up to heaven, angels going up and down on the ladder. And God speaks to him. It says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. Later on he has a wrestling match with God. A couple chapters later he wrestles with him and God calls his name Israel instead of Jacob. Same promise. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. The only ones God gave that promise to so far is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of the other sons, all of the other descendants were bypassed for this particular plot of land. Now, before you go feeling sorry for the ones that were left out, go on a map and look at what God promised Ishmael and what God promised Esau, the country of Seir, Moab, Edom, and look how much is there. In fact, in proportion, God blessed the others far more with greater landmass. But that particular land, God promised to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, time passes. Jacob's now an old guy. And uh, he has a bunch of kids, 12 of them. One of his sons is in Egypt, but he thinks he's dead. It's Joseph. Joseph is the prime minister. When the old man finds out that his son Joseph is still alive and kicking and the prime minister of Egypt and there's a famine in the land and they're about to die, they need water, they need food. He wonders, should I go to the land of Egypt or not? God put us in this land. God put me in this land. He said, stay here. God appeared to him and said, I will go down with you to Egypt. I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. You're going to go, but you'll come back. That is, your descendants will come back. Now, when they went down to Egypt, how long did they stay altogether? About 400 years. It's a long vacation. But they prospered in that land. They were in the land of Goshen. And God blessed the children of Israel in Egypt, and they grew and they grew, until finally a pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. And the Jews were persecuted in that land. 
And God raised up a deliverer named Moses, and Moses brought them through the plagues, out to the wilderness, across the Red Sea, into the brink of the promised land of Israel. By the way, you hear people say Palestine. I hate that term. The term is Israel. God called it Israel. That's the name he gave them. Palestine was a name given by the Romans when they conquered the Jews to get back at them and to rub their noses in it. Palestine means Ur Philistia, land of the Philistines, showing that you guys have had foreign oppressors all of your lives. We're just another one. We'll call you Palestine. God called it the land of Israel. And God promised that they would come back. So there they are perched at the borders of the land of Israel, looking over the border. In Deuteronomy 1.8, it says, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now these are all the descendants, the Jewish nation. And to give them and their descendants this land after them. Fact number seven disobedience never negated their right to the land. Now, I kind of hinted on that before, but I've got to underscore that again because there's a whole lot of people who would say, God is finished with national Israel. All of the blessings are now conferred to Gentiles, to Christians, and God has no part with the Jewish nation. No, it's not true. God promised that the throne of David would last forever. And it's already stopped. And for Jesus to make good his promises to David and to the rest, Jesus has to sit on the throne of David in Zion. Isaiah chapter 2 and several New Testament passages as well. But anyway, Leviticus 26. If you're in 25, you may want to just turn right a chapter. Look at verse 44. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths when it lies desolate without them. This is when they disobey God and God kicks them out of Israel. That's the Babylonian captivity, by the way, he's predicted. And they will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments, because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all of that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of all the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Another passage is in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the first five verses. It shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. You see... Their disobedience didn't even take God by surprise. God says, this is your land, stay in it, obey me. Now I know you're not going to do that. In fact, I know you're going to disobey me, and because of that, I'm going to kick you out. And when I kick you out, you're going to start crying. And when you cry, I'm going to listen to you and bring you back. That's basically the gist of this. And you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart, with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it 
He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. It's so exciting to go to Israel and see Jews from all over the world, recently from Ethiopia and the Soviet Union, over 400 and some odd nations where Jews have been dispersed literally all over the planet and be gathered in that land. Some, Most of them are so poor they can't hardly survive. And you have physicists and doctors and these great brilliant thinkers from the Soviet Union who are on the street playing their violins with a little cup in hopes that somebody would give them money. They don't care, though. They would rather be in Israel on a street corner playing the fiddle than to be in the Soviet Union because it's not Israel. They're happy to be gathered back into their land, and the land is happy to receive them. Would you turn with me to Romans 9 for just a moment? Boy, I better hurry up. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. By the way, that's one of the strongest affirmations in all of the Bible on the deity of Jesus Christ. Right there. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. What he's saying is, my heart is filled with sorrow because my kinsmen, my nation, the Jewish people of whom I served as a rabbi, They don't know their own Messiah. They're so blinded to it. And I would wish that I would be cut off from salvation if that could mean their salvation. Because, he goes on to say, we owe a great debt to the Jewish nation. They've given us the Scriptures, the whole Old Testament, most of the New Testament except the book of Luke and Acts, written by Jewish people. Jesus said to the woman in Samaria, salvation is of the Jews. Because the whole plan was written about through the Jewish nation, the promise of the Messiah, and here he was, their Messiah, predicting a Jew himself under the law, obedient to the law, who had come also to fulfill the law. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, if we had another two or three hours, we would get into them, but we don't. But basically he says this, God still has a plan for this nation. They're like an olive tree, and the branches that were there to bear fruit have been taken away, and new ones have been grafted in. That would be you and you, all of the Gentiles. Now, in Israel, there are olive trees, and they last hundreds of years, thousands of years, actually. There's uh, some that they date in Jerusalem to be 18 to 1900 years old. One tree, two trees, several around the Garden of Gethsemane. When an olive tree gets really old, It still will live, but it becomes less and less productive as the years go on. So it's a common practice to lop off a branch or simply to add new, tiny, tender shoots into the tree. And those little shoots become more productive, taking place of the fruit that the tree was not bearing. Now, Jesus said to the Jews that the kingdom will be taken from you and given to nations bearing fruits of repentance. In other words, God has opened up salvation for every one of us. 
Yet, Paul goes on to say that God isn't finished with Israel. God will work with the nation of Israel once again. And the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, which we have talked about in length in the past, is that period in which God will work with the Jewish nation. 144,000 of them will turn to Christ and will be sealed during the tribulation period and will become witnesses for the world. Fact number eight, I'll close quickly with this. We look forward to the restoration of Israel. It will only happen when the Messiah rules and reigns in that land. The peace process, I'm all for it. But frankly, it'll never work. Now you can say you're a skeptic. Well, just watch, okay? Just watch. See if it works. I'm all for the negotiating table. I'm all for working out the differences. But there will never be security and stability in the land till the Prince of Peace rules in that land. That's why when they talk about peace, I go, yeah, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's the only hope for that nation as well as the rest of the world. Now, we don't have time to turn to it, but on your own, look at Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. God says, I have made a covenant with this land, and I will never break it. He says, just as you look up and you see the sun and the moon and the stars, and they're always there, you can always count that I will be their God, and I will have my plan for that nation. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. Many of them have not yet been fulfilled. They can only be fulfilled when the Messiah comes. That's why I get excited when I read this from one rabbi in Jerusalem. Quote, time is rushing on. God must take a hand in history as he did in the time of Moses. This is the time when Messiah will come. He might even come tomorrow. A few years back, there was some dissatisfaction with the amount of Christians coming on the scene in the Jesus movement and many Jews being converted to Christianity. And a book was written called The Fuhrer Over Jewish Evangelism. The rabbi said, quote, We are living in an age when people want something a bit more tangible in their religion. They want to touch, approach, and feel God. Judaism has always been very abstract. It raises more questions than it answers. The Jesus movement has all the answers. What an admission from a Jewish rabbi. We need answers. We don't have any answers. And this movement called the Jesus movement has all the answers. Israel is crying out. I would ask you to pray with me, as it says in Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love thee. And when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, effectively you are saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And as you go over to Israel today, you see all over the plan of God unfolding for that nation. So, let's... We have 15 minutes to show you the entire nation. This will be easy. Okay, we're going to move the screen up. Thanks. And last uh, week I showed, or two weeks ago, I showed you Jerusalem, and we had to stop with that. And so I'm not going to show you Jerusalem tonight, but some other parts of the land and give you some biblical significance on what happened there. You'll see Masada and some of these other places in Galilee where Jesus walked and, and see a few of the things that really, it doesn't do it justice. You really have to be there and breathe the air and walk on the stones. But nonetheless, I've been asked by so many people, listen, we can't go to Israel. Could you at least show us some slides? So I'm going to do that tonight. Okay, this is... Um, uh, New Mexico. No, I'm just kidding. This is 
the place that had some of the most significant things ever happen right here on this piece of ground. Every year on Yom Kippur, the priest would take a goat called the scapegoat and release it from this mountain. It would go out into the Judean wilderness where the Dead Sea is on the horizon and the goat was symbolic of the sins of the nation being taken away. Masada. This is a rock fortress at the Dead Sea. Where I'm standing, where the picture is taken, is 1,290 feet below sea level. The lowest place in the world. And because of that, it's some of the hottest temperatures in the world. Herod the Great built huge storerooms on top of Masada so that being out in the middle of the desert, he could have thousands, or he had at least several hundred, up to a thousand, sometimes two thousand people that were living up there, and these were storerooms uh, on top. That's the view from the top looking down. And can you see this path? This is the path that you walk up. Uh, if you don't want to take the cable car, that is. You can take the cable car like you have up at Sandia, or you can walk the serpentine snake path. What are these? Cannonballs. First century cannonballs. The Jews used these. When the Romans started attacking and breaching their wall, they built little catapults and throw these off. This is our tour group on top of Masada over by the storerooms. And that area in the back is the west side. The northern palace on top of Masada. Just to get an idea, these are all ruins, but can you imagine all these pillars built up with a roof and a hallway, frescoes, paintings around? Three separate terraces for one palace on the northern end of Masada. That was for Herod whenever he wanted to hang out. Inside the shot I just showed you, uh, now looking down, you can see the pillars, and you can see 2,000-year-old paintings still intact on the plaster walls. Again, Herod the Great, the guy that killed the babies of Bethlehem. This is where he hung out in the wintertime, and these are the paintings that surrounded his palace on Masada. The synagogue where Eleazar Ben-Yair read that oration to the men the night that they took their lives. This is just a view from the northern palace looking up to the top terrace of the same palace. Now we're gone from Masada and we're in the time of King David when he was fleeing from King Saul. And it says he fled to the strongholds of En Gedi. And this is down by the Dead Sea. It's an oasis. It's fresh water coming out of the rocks. And in such a hot area, it's a welcome piece of refreshment. If you hike back through this canyon, there's three separate waterfalls. We only hike to the first one. That's a stiff enough hike. But there's caves that are all through these rocks where he could have hidden in any one of them when he fled from King Saul. And then looking out from En Gedi, from the direction the previous picture was taken, you see the Dead Sea, the shoreline. It's hard to see because of the haze, but can you see the mountains, some of them in the distance? That's Jordan, and that's the place where Moses looked in scoping out the land and was not allowed to enter. Some of the rocks, caves at En Gedi, maybe David hid in any one of them. More of the same. No, 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 no. This is Qumran. 
The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in these caves, and right here, in these two, in that cave, uh, the scroll of Isaiah was found. The most complete copy of any of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were found in that cave, and the Qumran community, where the scribes lived, were off to the right of this. Sheep in the wilderness. This is Calvary Chapel of uh, Israel. (laughs) This is a monastery in the middle of nowhere. I took a four-wheel drive excursion on a free day. In fact, I've arranged it for those who want to go to go on the same four-wheel drive Jeep ride this time on the free day. And uh, this is a monastery that dates way back several hundred years. And it's got one of the best libraries, ancient libraries, in all of the world uh, in the halls of that. Next. Closer view. Nice place. Okay, more of the same. I got the lens closer, that's all. I was having fun with the film. Next. You can, yeah. This is a snowstorm. Caesarea. Do you remember the story in the book of Acts 25, 26, and 24 when Paul the Apostle is at Caesarea, stands before Festus, Felix, and Agrippa, and he gives his defense, and then he leaves Caesarea and goes to Rome on his missionary journeys? He gave that oration probably in this amphitheater. This is only one small section of it. It's been partially restored. They have concerts in it today, great acoustics. The first day of the tour or uh, shortly thereafter, we bring our whole group there, we sit on the steps, and we go through that section of the book of Acts. Okay, I wanted to show you this stone. because It has the names of two very important people. And before this stone was found, you had all these critics and scholars saying, the Bible isn't reliable, there's no archaeological evidence. How do we know Pontius Pilate ever existed? There's no such person, only the Bible says it. Then they found this stone, which has... Part of the Emperor Tiberius's name, and then it says Pontus Pilatus, Pontius Pilate. It was this stone, this is a reconstruction of it at Caesarea. They have it in the museum in Israel. It was the definitive find that showed that archaeology had his name. They did have podiatrists in Israel. <laughs> this is simply an enormous foot. That's all it is. Why I took it, I don't know, except it just intrigued me. I liked it. These are some of the statues, and I wanted to show you two things. Caesarea, you'll see a portion of the street and a couple of the statues. So if you were to walk through the marketplace, you had this kind of artwork around you all the time. And then when it was taken over later, when the Romans were expelled and the Turks got in, they lopped off the heads of all the statues. It was their custom. There's the other one, his friend, on the other side of the street, in Caesarea by the sea. Another picture. I don't know. I didn't look at these slides before I put them in. Sorry about that. Some are repeated. Okay. Here you get an idea of a cross section of a Roman street, uh, ancient pavement, 2,000 years old. You can see the groups up here. So they had to dig down. All the rest is rubble. Archaeology shows that people build one on top of the other, city after city. The moat, 
a dry moat. No water was ever in this, but the idea was that you are fortified being inside the city walls, and you can easily see if somebody's outside the city walls, and if they want to get in, they have to go down and up again, and by that time, you can nail them. (laughs) Again, a moat shot from the other side. This is all the Roman city of Caesarea that Paul the Apostle spent two years in. A palm tree in Caesarea. Next. Oh, can you focus that a little bit? This thing is... Oh, it's maybe I made it out of focus. It's 2,000-year-old pavement. There are several of these around. What they did 2,000 years ago is take stones and put little crevices in them, chisel out little sections of them so that when it got wet, the horses wouldn't slip on the stones of the streets. And they had a piece of wood that would come out of here for a hitching post for the horses of the Roman soldiers. This is the moat. It says, Paul the Apostle set sail from Caesarea, and this is where one of the boats were kept. You'd have to dig all this out, and you would walk from here down the steps, get into the boat, and you're out to the sea in the Mediterranean. Looking out toward the sea, this is more of the modern reconstruction. I say modern, you know, it's about seven, eight, nine hundred years old. But for Israel, that's pretty recent. Next. Caesarea by the sea. If you can see some of these pieces of stone, these are ancient pillars from the harbor that Herod the Great had built. Uh, what a magnificent harbor in Caesarea. When we go, we'll explain that to you. My son, standing under a Roman aqueduct which conveyed water some 40 miles On top was the pipe, and it conveyed water from the north down to the south. The Mediterranean Sea up north. The Bible says in the book of Acts that Paul the Apostle stopped at a place called Ptolemaeus, P-T-O-L, it's spelled initially, Ptolemaeus, where there were some brothers in Christ who spent a few days with them. Ptolemaeus is here. It's an ancient walled city, and the walls extend all the way out to the sea, so it was heavily fortified. And you get a good idea of what an ancient city, a Phoenician city, would look like. Next. We'll go through these shots kind of rapidly to show you. See the walls? And uh, you can see that anybody, anybody coming into attack would be uh, spotted. Next. They still fish the same way. Cast out their nets, make a circle, catch fish. You see that in the Sea of Galilee as well as the Mediterranean. Next. We caught one. Next. Have you any of you seen the movie Jesus, uh, movie Jesus based on the Gospel of Luke? If you've seen that film, they filmed the crucif- the flogging scene of Jesus here, and uh, this is an ancient market, several hundred, almost uh, twelve hundred years old, uh, up in Akko. Next, seawall overlooking the Mediterranean. Okay. Jesus took his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon. And Jesus asked them a question at this spot. Who do men say that I am? Some say you're, you know, John the Baptist, Elijah. Well, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the mouth of the Jordan River. Right underneath this rock, the Jordan River flows out and waters all of Israel. This is the place of ancient worship. There were 
worshipping the gods of Greek, Pan or Paneus. They worshipped the Roman emperors. And in a place that was this huge rock fortress of pagan worship, and the rock that gave them water, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And it was the confession of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Not Peter, but the confession of Peter, that Jesus was the Christ. The rock that he would build his church upon. And what a dramatic backdrop to give that message. And that's the reason Jesus gave that message, I think, at this particular place. Next. Mount. Anybody? Hermon. Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the dew that descends from Mount Hermon. The Golan Heights. Right here is the disputed area. Will Israel give it to Syria? What will happen to this strategic area of land? Next. A castle in the hills of Zebulun in the northern Galilee where the Crusaders built uh, a fortress years ago. The Jordan River flowing out of Dan. I'll explain that in just a moment. Next. It's a land of contrast, isn't it? This is a very lush area of northern Israel, and yet I've shown you the barren desert. And Richard was saying it is a land of contrast. I mean, you have desert, but you have lush, green, beautiful tropical areas. Next. This is the steps. These are the steps, excuse me, to an altar. Maybe you can focus that a little bit better. It's up in the area of Dan, where the tribe of Dan settled. Do you remember when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, said, I'm going to tax you and treat you more harshly than my father did. And there was a revolt and the kingdom split. And Jeroboam started his own movement and he put two gold calves for worship in Israel, one in Bethel and one in Dan. This is the altar that King Jeroboam built, atop of which sat a golden calf and the children of Israel committed idolatry in this spot. a reconstructed idea of what the altar might have looked like made out of wood so people could get the idea. Next. From the altar looking out. Just another view. The steps of the altar. Now, I took that because I see that and I imagine all of those people who said, we're not going to worship in the temple of Jerusalem. We're going to do things our way. We'll worship the way we feel like worshiping in our own place, in our own style. And it was all pagan idolatry. And it occurred at one of these spots. Okay, you know, we're running out of time, so I'm going to quickly tell you about this place, Capernaum, the synagogue at Capernaum. Some of the greatest miracles of Jesus ever were performed in the synagogue of Capernaum. He spent this, his three and a half years, here is his headquarters in Capernaum. And here's the ruins of the ancient synagogue. And we'll sit in there and have a Bible study. Probably right here on these steps. That's where the shade is, at least this time of day. I, I, if I had time, I'd go through and show you how it was constructed and where everybody sat, but we don't have enough time. Next. Some of the ancient homes in Capernaum. Who's, uh, which home was Peter's? We don't know. But somewhere in this city lived these Galilean fishermen. It was their home, and it was Jesus' home, and these were his surroundings during his ministry. 
a mosaic. That's all that's about left of Capernaum. Of course, Jesus cursed that city, didn't he? He said, Capernaum, you've been exalted up to heaven, but you've rejected me. You'll be brought down to hell. And there's nothing here but ruins. This is a uh, top of a pillar. I've taken this picture because you can see a menorah that represents the golden candlestick in the temple of Jerusalem and a shovel for the coals at the altar of incense. Next. Another relief. This stuff's all over Israel. You uncover every bush and you find something cool. This represents the Ark of the Covenant. Next. Via Maris. The way of the sea. The main highway that connected the lands of Mesopotamia with Egypt. And it ran right through Capernaum. And why is this mile marker here? Because the Via Maris in the mile marker is where tax collectors would collect taxes from the people. And we know that there's a notable tax collector in this city named Matthew, whom Jesus went to the receipt of customs and said, follow me. And so who knows if this was where he sat or what he saw, but it's from that era. A millstone. This is a small one, by the way. I've seen bigger. You get the idea now? You know, a guy standing here would be about this tall. When Jesus said it would be better if you take a millstone and tie it around their neck and throw them in the Sea of Galilee than for them to offend one of these little ones, you get the idea of what he's saying? It's like saying, case them in cement and toss them in the, in the deep. Next. All of press. Love to explain it. Don't have enough time. Next, let's see. I think we're just about out of time. Sea of Galilee. Look at that boat. They've taken an old boat. They've taken a new boat and made it like an old boat. And they doubled the size. And one day we'll take a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee, beginning in Tiberias, and go all the way to Capernaum and uh, stop in the middle and have a worship service. It's always a great time to do it there at the and get the whole layout of the Sea of Galilee. The land of the Gadarenes, by the way, where the pigs ran off the other side is right on that side. Next. They're fishing. They stop the boat and they throw out the nets like in ancient times. Next. I think we have a photo of that. There he is. Good catch, good throw. Jesus gave one of the greatest sermons on this spot or in this area, this general spot. It's uh, traditionally called the Sermon of the Mount Mount where Jesus sat his disciples and taught. Jordan River. We're going to stop with this tonight, but get a look at this. This is where we baptize those who want to get baptized in the Jordan River. It's a little bit different than the swimming pool we used Saturday. It's a beautiful place. And, uh, uh, of course, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And um, so we'll have our baptism. You know, go to the next one. Let's see what it is. Oh, that's lunch. (laughs) My wife found this thing, and she walked around with it for a couple hours. And it's just some... Lizard there. Okay, you know, let's get the lights on and uh, we'll pray and we'll go. We could keep going. There's more slides, but we don't have enough time. I'm sorry about that. Let's all stand. Let's have the worship band come up. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for being able to spend a few moments seeing a little slice of that land, that has so much history behind it from the days of Abraham and the patriarchs 
all the way through the New Testament and still has significance. It's still that hotly contested area of the world. And Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We thank you, Lord, that when you make a covenant with people, you always keep your end of the bargain. And we pray tonight, Lord, that you would bring peace to that land as the negotiators, the prime ministers, the different people sit at the table. We pray that you bring peace to that land. And as we pray that, attached to that is come quickly, Lord Jesus. Not only heal our land, but reign among your people and reign over the earth. We look forward to the time when you set up your everlasting kingdom and reign 